The online marketing world is full of ridiculously big promises. Now, don't get me wrong, making big promises that you can keep can be an important part of attracting attention and getting the right prospects to respond to the offer that you're writing about or making to your own audience. But sometimes even marketers and copywriters who are hearing big promise after big promise, well, it can make you feel like you're falling behind. If you haven't hit six figures by the end of your first year, if you haven't 10xed your income, you're not doing enough. And if you want to stand a chance of succeeding, you've got to step it up. Hi, I'm Rob Marsh, one of the founders of the Copywriter Club. And on today's episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, my co-founder, Kira Hug, and I interviewed copywriter Eden Bedani. Eden talked about her slow ramp up and why growing her business slowly was a better way to do it. She also shared how to go deep with research so that you get better qualitative data and why she has a two-call discovery process. We think you're going to like this interview, so stick around. But first... This episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is brought to you by the Copywriter Underground. We haven't talked a lot about that recently, but it really truly is the best membership for copywriters and content writers. And let me just give you a really short, small, brief idea of what you get for $87 a month in the Underground. First, there's a monthly group coaching call with Kira and me where you can get answers to your questions, advice about overcoming any business or client or writing challenge that you have. There are weekly copy critiques where we give you feedback on your copy and your content. doesn't matter what it is. could be LinkedIn posts. It could be your website. It could be content or copy that you're writing for clients. We've looked at and responded to all kinds of things like that. Having your copy critiqued is an amazing way just to improve your skills and get feedback from somebody else who's thinking just a little bit differently about what you're doing. There are also regular training sessions on different copy techniques and business practices that are designed to help you get better. We're adding a new monthly AI tool review where we share either a new AI tool that we like and we think might help you in your business or a technique or a prompt or something you can do differently with AI to get more done. That's on top of the massive library of training and templates that's already in the community. And the community is full of copywriters ready to help you with just about anything from sharing leads to answers to questions to things like how do I price this or what should I include in that you can find out more about the underground at thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCU. And with that, let's go to our interview with Eden. Eden, why don't we start with your story? How did you end up as a copywriter? A really long story, actually, but I'll give you the, the Cliff's Note version. So I was working, I mean, I always loved writing. I was a book nerd, totally, just I imagined that, you know, one day in my wildest dreams, maybe I'd be writing for a living. But, you know, reality hit. And so I was doing doing an arts degree at university and I was studying anthropology. And I thought that marketing was like the antithesis. Marketing and advertising was the antithesis, like to everything that I believed in. Anthropology is all about understanding people and trying to help them on their own terms. And marketing was like, I want to sell you this thing. And so I was like... If I'm ever going to do any writing, it's definitely not going to be that. Um, but lo and behold, I needed to pay the bills while I was studying at university. So I ended up going, I ended up getting a sales job and I ended up actually loving it. And I realized that actually having this unique perspective on trying to understand who you're selling to, who you're talking to, getting to that on a really deep level enables you. It, it's all about opening communication, right? Having this open, clear communication with the other person, really understanding their needs enables you to actually help the person when you have a good product and they have a need that good communication is that is that path and so eventually ended up uh in copywriting so I did the sales job for quite a while left uni not very much uh not very many paying jobs for anthropologists to help there and so I ended up fell into copywriting so what were you selling when on your sales job so we were selling cosmetics Awesome. And how, so obviously anthropology doesn't necessarily translate into copy sales does, but as you Mm -hmm. fell into copywriting, like tell us that story, like what was that first client or that first interaction? And then how did, how did you go from sort of one to three Mm -hmm. to five? Like, you know, how, how did it, how did it blossom? Absolutely. Um, Well, so I didn't have the, I didn't, 
I didn't have any help along the way. Unfortunately, I did it. I did everything the hard way. I started out by applying to job descriptions. I think it was the pro blogger job board. I think all the way back. I'm talking like eight years ago. I started applying. I started pitching. I had no samples. I had nothing to share. Um, I said, I'm willing to write a free sample for you. I have very, I have good experience in selling, so I know how to write and I know how to write. So maybe let, if you let me do this for you really, really cheaply, um, you know, that would be, I would love to help you. So it was really kind of that. And I look back at some of those old emails and they were really cringy and really desperate, but I did have some people take me up on them. Actually, um, I was very surprised. And a couple of them actually turned into long-term clients. Again, I'm talking, I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking $15 a blog article kind of clients. Um, so but it was still, but it was still something, right? And with the exchange rate where I'm living now, it was still also something. It was much more than minimum wage. And I think that's also something that's pretty crucial. My $15 a blog post was like, it was like three or four hours of working outside the home, the equivalent here. So for me, it was really empowering, even though it's really, it's not a lot. And for the amount of work that I did, it still wasn't a lot in the big scheme of things. For me, that was really empowering. So it just kept pushing forward with that. So every time I had a client or I had a sample that came out, I would use that sample then when I pitched the next client. And then when I pitched the next client, I had another sample. And then, or another testimonial, and it kind of just, it just it was step by step by step by step. And every every now and then, I said, well, maybe I should raise my prices because there's only so many blog posts I can write a week. If I charge twenty dollars instead of fifteen dollars for a blog post, I would make a lot more. So it was really this iterative process, and it took a really long time from going from again fifteen a fifteen dollar blog post. I had my first client. Um, and then my my second client actually ended up being an affiliate marketing company. And so they also needed a lot of uh, affiliate style landing pages and so blog post style landing pages uh, that they used to write, adver- a lot of advertorials. And so, and then I actually moved up to the pay grade of $30 an hour. And I thought like, that was the bee's knees. I was like, this is, I'm, I'm living the rich life. Like that is... <laughs> But for me, but where I was and where you know where I was back then, it it absolutely was, and it was really you know that's still that thirty dollars an hour was so empowering back then, and I still feel the same way about that today. Um, moving up from there, yeah. So it's again, I could keep going. It's just a really long iterative process of winning a new client, pitching a new client, raising the prices really slowly, and it's taken a really long time, but it was worth it. Let's talk more about that prospecting process, just because, I mean, we, we talk about it frequently on this podcast. We have a course all about it because it's so difficult for so many writers um, or they give up and they're like, this just doesn't work. And clearly it was working for you, maybe not immediately. I guess what advice would you give to someone listening who has tried it and felt like it didn't work for them um, or maybe is afraid to try it? Uh, so that it, it can work and lead to at least one client that can hopefully lead to the next client. Absolutely. I think the best thing that you can do for yourself is to lower your expectations. Do not pour all your heart and soul into every one of those. Do not. You have to maintain an emotional distance from putting that. You are applying for a job. You have, you know, this. do not see like every job opportunity that comes up. It's like, oh, this is this is the one thing that's going to help me break into copywriter and this is the client that's going to change everything because if they you maybe you win that client but then they stop after one project and that feels even worse than not winning that client in the first place so it's lower your expectations keep and keep that emotional distance and when I say lower your expectations especially when you're starting out it's probably going to be uh, you know I don't I don't know I know that not everyone agrees with this advice but be flexible about your rates as well when you're starting out. I know it's charge what you're worth, but you have to prove your worth before you can charge for it. So yes, fair market rates, but don't try don't go over quoting when that when under quoting a bit and you can get that sample and then you have something to to pitch another client with. I think that's something that's often really missed out in the process. Some people I hear some people say no I reached out to a copywriter that they, you know, they sent me an email and I replied back to them and then they like disappeared, like they were being overly dramatic. Oh, suddenly I'm not available. Or, you know, being like suddenly they 
they realize the client has shown interest and then suddenly they start playing like these cat and mouse games. It's like, no, just be honest, be open. Um, and again, lower your expectations and keep that emotional distance. So can I ask about the actual pitch itself? Uh, you know, obviously you identify a client that you want to work with, uh, you know, and, and yeah, it, this is the one that changes everything kind of attitude. I totally get that. I've done that in my own business where I'm like, oh yeah, I'll pitch, I'll pitch this client and I'll do, you know, this is the one, right? Um, but what were you saying in the pitches in order to get people to respond? And I, the reason I'm asking this is for a lot of copywriters who do send out pitches, oftentimes the response is crickets. And you know, you, you're right, you can't take that personally, but after six or seven non-responses, it, it does start to feel personal. Uh, it's not personal, but it feels that way. So what Absolutely. were you saying in the pitches in order to get those responses or start those conversations so that it would move on to a project at some point? Uh, great question. I think one of the things that I, when I look back recently at some of the pitches that I used to send out, I was making promises that I knew I could keep. So saying like, you know, I, if you do, you know, if you hire me to do this, then I you can expect communication, you know, within 24 hours, you can expect this or I'll, you know, because I'm, because this is one of my, you know, one of my earlier jobs, I'd be happy to work with you on three, four rounds of revisions so that you feel confident in the end result. So just making promises that I can keep. I couldn't say, I know it's going to perform well for you. Or it's going to, you're going to work, get millions in sales from this $15 blog post. Trying not to, to pump up the value of what I can deliver because just trying to keep it as real as possible. What can you deliver? Just being honest about that is so powerful. It's really people feel that honesty comes through in the email. Like you said, again, I didn't have I didn't have anything to offer. I didn't have any sample. I said, you know what? I will reply to you right away. I'm open to edits because I want this to be to be a really good piece for you. Um, just things like that. I think just that honesty about um, about what you can deliver and what you can't. And then once you have their attention and you get them on a sales call, I'm sure your sales calls have evolved over the years too. I would love your sales tips, maybe, I don't know, top two or three from, especially from your sales experience prior to copywriting. Um, I'm always learning how to improve my sales calls. There's always so, there are always so many mistakes and so many opportunities to um, improve those calls. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the biggest thing that I would say is let them talk, let them talk as almost as if you're doing the actual, like the actual first interview, let them talk. Oh, that's really interesting. Tell me about your business. Tell me why you got into this. Tell me what, you know, what you're doing or tell me what you're struggling with. And almost for, usually for like the first 15 to 20 minutes of a discovery call, like I almost don't say nothing or say, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Or this is so cool. I'm so, so excited to meet you because it sounds like a really cool, you know, company, a really cool product that you have. Let them talk. And that lets them feel just showing them that you're able to listen is huge because they will have hopped on so many, they will have gotten so many pitches that they will have hopped on so many calls where someone's trying to sell them from the second, trying to show them that we're number one, we're the best, where, you know, I'm going to be, I'm uh, going to over deliver for you. Showing them first that you're on their side, that you're there to listen and help them is amazing because clients aren't coming to you because they want words. Clients are coming to you because they're looking to solve a business problem and they think copy is going to solve it. So by showing them that you listen, you say, mm, that's, you know, that's really interesting. Here's how we could solve this with copy or here's how we could address this problem with copy. It's like you, you don't even have to, you're not even pitching. You're showing all that they've created the gap. They've explained to you the problem and you're showing them a way out. So it makes it very easy for them to to understand then the value of what you're delivering because they've just told you what their problem is and you've just presented a solution. You haven't actually tried, you're not trying to force something down their throat. It's very easy for them to say, that sounds amazing. You know, what? where do we start? What else do you do on your sales call? You know, are you immediately talking about pricing? Are you talking about timelines as well? How much of that is locked in before you hang up the phone and send out the proposal or send up the follow-up, whatever that looks like? That's, that's a great question. I have an, I have a non-traditional approach to that. I am happy to meet with a client before we, and to, to have a discussion, a 15, 20 minute discussion. And even when we don't talk about pricing, um, or sometimes it happens in the last few minutes, 
of the call just to see that we're aligned, but I try to get a gauge, um, try to understand what their potential budget is before we even get to that first call. So on my intake form, I do have a question. It's like, what do you imagine or how much you would able to spend? If they bring budget up, then we talk about it. But I really like to spend that first conversation trying to understand the person. One of the things that I've discovered is it's not, it's about the budget, but it really is not always about the budget. Like there is, there can always be a budget for the right person and the right solution at the right time. So sometimes their hands are tied and they really don't have much, but then you can always negotiate and reduce the scope to help meet their budget. So there's so there's so many things that you can do, you know, and then you don't lose the client. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of flexibility there. And I think just starting with the understanding, trying to understand the client as best possible first has been has been huge. So that again, pricing and budget when that comes to that, yeah, we have a very open conversation, try to give them a ballpark rate explanation of so normal projects or I did a recent project for a similar for X company and it went for how many weeks or how many months and this is what it cost. So based on based on what we've said so far, it may be in the range of X to Y. So just to see if we if we align. So are you having that? I know you mentioned sometimes it doesn't come up on that initial call. If it doesn't come up, then are you booking a follow-up call or are you, how does, how does that work? No, absolutely. So if, if that initial 15 kind of 20 minute call and we feel that there's like, we feel that there's chemistry, feel that there's someone here that really understands the value of copy and someone that sounds like they're going to be a good potential partner to work with, I'm happy to say, look, I'd love to learn more and like to see how we could potentially collaborate this as, as a project can we book a, another 20 minute follow-up call for a couple of days after or a week after and talk about project specs and they're usually like yeah absolutely and by the time you've got them even into a second call the likelihood that you're actually going to close them there is is huge I myself used to get stuck on in the early days 45 to 50 to 6 or as an hour length calls and we talk about pricing we talk about everything talk about the project and get to the end and then I'd send them a proposal it's like this is what you said is on the call and then I wouldn't hear from them I found that it's much more effective for my time to have two touch points even if they're much shorter even if they're much shorter and much smaller in terms of the scope or depth that we that we get into but it's actually much more effective. Just that frequent contact has been huge. And then at some point, again, you've only had two 15 or two 20 minute calls up to this point. If it's not a good fit, that's fine. But you didn't spend 45 minutes to an hour, you know, and then and then spend a couple of hours creating a proposal for it to not put to get to get crickets, which is worse. Yeah, that, yeah. That I've heard other people talk about a two call strategy, uh, and I've I've done that myself occasionally with that get to know you call. It's like, yep, okay, let's schedule that again. And I really like that, um, especially it's probably especially worth trying out if people are ghosting you after that first call. Then maybe mm-hmm. maybe it is smart to break it into those two calls. So I, I really like that. Um, I want I want to shift the conversation just a little bit. So you started out mentioning the low low price points that you were you know taking for those uh, first projects, fifteen dollars. I'm curious how that has escalated. And I know before we started the call, you know, we said, okay, you know, we, we want to have a discussion maybe around check flashing and some of the stuff that happens online where people talk about all the money they're earning. And that's not the intention here. But I, I would like to know, like, clearly, you're not still making 15 or even $30 per blog post. So your pricing has evolved some. How has that happened over time? It hasn't happened easily. I have to say it hasn't happened easily. Oh. I didn't have, as I mentioned before, I wasn't. I didn't have anyone to guide me. I had no idea what was acceptable rates. Where it took me a long time to even find some courses or even to find something to give me that support and backup, and then confidence to actually go ahead and start raising rates. Um, but it, it was a methodical process of, okay, this has worked. I've done this for six weeks, eight weeks, or I've done X number of projects this time, and the client feedback is coming back really well. I can raise rates with. Then I'm going to try and raise it even a little bit, even if you just ask for $50 more, you ask for $100 more, I'm not talking even thousands. Every little, every little bit that you increase is a win for you. It's more, more for what you did the same, for doing the same work again. So every time, and again, because you get better and you get faster, so you're even earning more for less time that you're spending doing the same amount of work. Um, and it has taken me a long time. 
I don't know, a really long time, eight years to to raise my rates. But I think, but there's there's a lot to be said for doing it slowly as well, because sometimes people jump too high too quickly. And even if they get clients that are happy to pay those market rates, and that's fine, but you get a lot of imposter syndrome and coming back to bite you. And then you get fr- freeze in the middle of a project. Wait, this client is paying me this much money? <laughs> and and I don't, I don't, I feel the copy is bad. Or, or then they come back, you know, they're paying you a lot. You feel you're on top of the world, signed a great client, uh, you know, nice check is coming on the way. Um, and then you, and then they come back and it's like, we don't like the copy. And then it, it, that feeling is, is just awful. So it's, a, you know, there's something to be said for raising your prices slowly over time in increments, but then just, just make sure that you are doing it regularly. So every, every two to three months, do a check see what you're doing. And again, it doesn't have to be a big jump, but every tiny jump that you do is also a win. I am curious to hear more about your specialty and how that has evolved over time. You know, when you really kind of moved away from, um, if you did blog posts and then moved more towards CRO and optimization, um, you know, whether it was a moment or it was just gradual, what did that look like? Yeah, it was, it was kind of a moment. Actually, because I would, I got to a point where the blog posts I was writing were already becoming very persuasive, and I was having clients get like, "I'm not trying to sell something here. I'm just trying to, I just want to write about something." And I was going, "Well, it's not fun." And I literally, like, I was like, "To me, it stopped being interesting." And so I think that's also important for copywriters. If you feel that you're doing something, or you're working in a niche, or you're doing a type of deliverable, and you do it all the time, and you just can't do it, even if it pays well, just you have to listen to that. You have to listen to that. Otherwise you're going to burn out really quickly. Um, but it was one point I sent back, um, and I, you know, a piece to a client. It was like, you know what, I, I don't want to do this <laughs> forever and ever. So then, and that was about the time when I won, uh, when I, not won, I landed the, um, the advertorial client. So it was a move. It was kind of a bridge from writing just blog posts to more direct response type copywriting, um, and then from there, I started working more on landing pages. So again, advertorials to landing pages, the leap is not huge. Um, and then progressing to website copy as a, as a result from that. And so when you get already to landing pages and website copy, all these elements of conversion come in because it's not, uh, you're not handing over a Google doc, you're handing, you know, you are handing over something that needs to become, it needs to turn into something else. So it's not going to be pasted as is on the website there's a website that's going to be created around this. So how's it going to look? What's that? How's it going to look on the page? How should it be wireframed? Why did you choose this button copy over this button copy? Uh, You know, all these interesting elements start to come into play. And so that's really where um, I found fell in love with conversion rate optimization. So you mentioned advertorials specifically. We haven't talked a lot about advertorials uh, on the podcast, which is uh, kind of interesting because, I mean, we've been doing it a long time. Uh, And when I started in my career, advertorials was one of the very first things that I wrote. I wrote a ton of them. They're kind of an interesting uh, kind of project. So talk about your approach there. Um, You know, not not necessarily like how did you find those clients, but you know when you're writing an advertorial, you're doing you're kind of doing two things at the same time. I mean, it is kind of a, a an information piece that sells. But talk about your philosophy and and just how you approached it. Absolutely. Um, so I treated them as like a landing page in every sense of the word. So past problem agitation solution, and then leading and then continuing with the with the solution. So you have the pain of the problems. A, a lot of because I was working again with affiliate marketing company. So a lot of the advertorials were positioned as, you know, most of the audiences were unaware. So we were starting with pain, agitation, and solution. Um, but it was basically following that and letting that tell the story for you. And then that's half the page already by the time you get to that and then continue onwards, it's talking about the solution, which is usually very easy to do. It's talking about the product, the benefits of the product. So it's mainly following, just following that story format. What's the problem? Talk about it. You don't have to have it in one line because it's not a landing page. You've actually got room to embellish, to actually you know, use a narrative, um, use a strong storytelling narrative to pull it through. How has your background in anthropology shaped your research process? I read a little bit about it online and following you on LinkedIn, but I'm curious like what you might be doing differently in your research compared to most writers. Uh, great question. I don't 
it's not something specifically that's very different, but it's just the way I, it's about how you interpret the qualitative data. So one of the things that I've seen happens a lot with conversion copies. On the one hand, it's great because it means that these companies are doing, are really listening to the voice of the customer and they're starting to try, they're trying to implement conversion copywriting. But you'll go to a lot of websites, you'll see everyone says it's like, turn your customers into raving fans or to, you know, grow your business. But you have no idea if it's like a SaaS fintech product or if it's uh, if it's Shopify or if it's like it could. It's like they, it gets to a certain point, but then it doesn't it's not rich enough. So what happens sometimes in the voice of customer collection process is when you're speaking to customers, like they ask one question. It's like, so why? Why do you use this product or what benefit or value does it deliver to you? So it turns my customers into raving fans. So that's what goes on the website. But why or how does that actually benefit you? What's that next step? You need to peel back the layer and go a little bit deeper than just than just that. Because while that statement is true, anyone else can claim that statement. So you need to find what is, try to get, peel back a little, go dig a little bit deeper and try and find out. So what is actually unique though? Okay, turn customers into raving fans. Okay, but how? What does that enable them to do? Or what's unique about the method or unique about the product? What can you do to layer into that? Or again, trying to dig through that qualitative um, data a little bit more thoroughly to try and get just the surface it's like again we it's like cut and paste from a transcript and that's what was the homepage you know the headline on the homepage of a website but it's still if everyone's saying the same thing and again it's not it's not that it's a false statement this is a true statement this is what the customers are saying but you need we need to dig a little bit deeper than that i think with um with anthropology one of the things is when you when you're interviewing um when you're interviewing subjects in anthropology this, the transcripts have to be verbatim. So every time there's a pause, every time they stutter, every time there's a hiccup or a cough or a this or a pause for breath, you have to leave that in the transcript. It's like, wait, because those are moments where something is happening. So, okay, maybe not a cough or a, or a sneeze so much, but often like those pauses for breath or when someone trails off because they've suddenly lost deep in thought, like what was happening? What Try to read between the lines as much as the like what is actually on the paper. And I think that's that's something that a few some writers seem to struggle with with voice of customer. Yeah, I really like that. Um, you know, looking for the pauses and reading between the lines. Do you have questions that you ask or that, that are kind of your go tos when you're looking to go deeper? Because I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I mean, everybody makes the same promises: more customers, more money, more revenue, more leads, uh, and. I, I think there's an issue there with figuring out like how does that show up specifically for you know that particular persona or avatar or customer segment, whatever you want to call that. So what kind of questions mm-hmm. help us get deeper other than why? Tacking on another question to the question you were just asked, like, like really tell me more or that sounds ama- like, can you, can you describe that? Like that sounds fascinating or, you know, I'd love to hear more about that. Can you share more details about that? Or how did that make you feel on top of maybe, we're, you know, maybe we're more cut. I, my customers are now raising fans. Or how does that make you feel? It's a really powerful. And suddenly you get this fountain of, oh, well, of course, it's amazing. And I can do this and that. And suddenly it's like they're still answering the same question as before, but they've suddenly added a whole ton of rich, you know, a rich layer of additional emotional meaning to that. So I think just trying to tack on, trying to continue or put, tease out that question or encourage them to continue responding to the same question. Um, again, by just keep them talking as much as possible. Um, and the insights do bubble up because a lot of the times, and even in customer interviews, even if you're not part of the company and even if you're a third party that's coming in to interview someone and they feel more comfortable with you than they would with the company because that they have an existing relationship with they will still often tell you what they think you want to hear so you have to keep them talking to actually get to the meat the you know the 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 deep stuff so this is probably where i should jump in and say okay tell me more uh can you share more details uh about that yeah (laughs) absolutely well I'll give you an example. I was working with the CEO of um, uh, CEO of, a, of, uh, of an AI company. So they build custom algorithms, really cool stuff. But you know, there's they were struggling with their positioning because there's nothing. The logical argument is that there's nothing really separating this fifty person 
hundreds of million dollars company from two developers of the laptop calling themselves data scientists. Um, so how, you know, who could do it in half the time with zero bureaucracy and for, you know, a, a quarter of the cost? So, and that, re- so I really had to talk, I had to grill the CEO quite a bit and I had to get him to talk to tell me what's so different about this company or how is, how what you're doing is so different. And so I got, I told him, tell me why you got into this. Tell me what's so interesting. I don't think he'd ever been asked that question before because he went into this, like he told me, he told me so many amazing things, like he burned so many misconceptions that I had about, about, you know, AI and machine learning just myself. And he's, you know, and he, and he flipped it and he said on his head, you know, he said, our positioning, he said, at the end of the day, I can't come to a company and say, I know your business better than you, than you do. You don't hear anyone saying things like that. Like you don't, you know, you don't hear anyone saying things like that. I said, it's so unconventional but it was sitting stuck in his head. He's just never said it out loud to anyone before. But that actually became a key piece then afterwards in in their copy and in their messaging because that's what's kind of driving it, was driving their whole product positioning moving forward. So we're not we're not here to we're not here to bring you a solution because we know better than you. We're here to work with you. You know your business well, we know this really well. Let's collaborate. And we can find those opportunities too. And that that says so much more than it's like we're going to do it for you quickly we'll do it for you cheap we'll do it for you fast more and more and more and more and more you know like um as you mentioned so it's it was teasing out and trying to get deep to deep into that and that was able to and we were able to uncover those insights and I said we have to like that has to be in the copy because it's so which what kind of CEO admits to people I don't know you know I don't know my clients business better than they do yeah, it's refreshing to hear something like that. I'm picturing you with this interview with this CEO or this founder and in the customer interviews, and I want to just get a handle on what the research looks like for your you and your team today. I I don't know if you've transitioned to the Cape agency or where you are in that process, but are you currently running all the research on the customer interviews, running the surveys? Do you have support and and how what does that timeline look like? I'm always curious to hear like how long mm-hmm. it takes people to really work through the research portion of a project. Absolutely. So research in terms of timeline, just to answer the last question, I try to keep it to four to six weeks. So like from kickoff to you have a present, you have the client has a deliverable in their hand. And that and that's usually when I'm saying four to six weeks, it's not a landing page project or an email sequence. I'm talking about if we're doing like a they're doing their rebranding, the repositioning, or they're doing the whole new website, or they're they new new messaging, a new messaging strategy. That's something else. Learning, I try to keep the research as tight as possible, simply because people hate waiting to get insights from research, and it's really frustrating. Clients like, I don't see any copy yet. Like, why is the research taking so long? I want to see. I want to get. I hired you. Okay, I understand research is part of your process. I want to get from project start to deliverables, the actual copy deliverable in my hand. So anything along the way feels like a, a lot of a strain. Um, I currently have two assistants working with me. So there we are a very small but tiny but mighty t- team here at Cape. Um, still still doing the trend branding transition over to that. But at the same time, so I'm still I'm involved in the research process, deeply involved. I still interview a lot of the clients myself. Um, I still do interview all the clients myself currently at this stage. Uh, but I do share things on the back end with my team and I give them access to to everything. So the recordings, to the transcripts, uh, so that they're able to get the full context of everything. I invite them to, if they have questions they'd like to ask the client up front, let me know. Um, you know, my approach is because I'm trying to slowly separate myself out from, from the business. So it's going to take time. But for now, still having assistance on the back end allows me to still be even more client facing. So I'm still working still frontlining with the client in all those situations. Um, but for all the research, for all the interviews, everything, it usually try to keep it to wrapped up within four to six weeks at, at the absolute most, because it's really hard for people to wait for research. <laughs> yeah, you can tell them, oh, it's going to be great. Just wait two more weeks. But they start to get that itch and need to see something. Uh, so Absolutely. how do you, I, when did you have a, that moment when you decided I do want to kind of pull back and those weren't your exact words, but maybe mm-hmm. move out or remove myself from some of the day-to-day 
And then when you make that decision, how do you map that out to make it happen? Because it, you could do it overnight. I mean, that would be hard to do that. Or it could take five years, mm-hmm. 10 years to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, it's a learning process. So I'm learning that I don't have an agency model. To, there's no guidebook. Right. Well, there are some guidebooks, but there's no like here, this tried and trusted agency model that everyone can copy and suddenly becomes a successful agency. Um, I still want to, the, the reason why I want to separate is because I've just, I've been doing this now for eight years. I have a small, lot of small children at home. I still want to be um, more of a, you know, more available for them. It's been a great ride, but I'm ready to, I'm in a position where I'm ready to hand off things that take me a lot of time but are not necessarily pivotal to the end result. So I'm really, I'm happy to hand off parts of the work. So again, I'm not handing like an entire project to someone. So here, I want you to do it from start to finish. Just show me the copy when it's ready and totally hands-free. It's more guided process. Let's do this together. And it's been a slow process of bringing someone in for just helping me synthesize the research or bringing someone in to help me uh, with the spit drafts of the copy or bringing someone in to help just with the wireframe. I have the copy. I don't have time to wireframe it, you know, put this in a wireframe. So a handing off little bits at a time. So testing the waters as well. Like what, how are people to work with? It's, it's all new to me. I work with myself. I can tell myself to do anything at any time, but oh, now I have to explain what I want to another person. And suddenly I feel like I'm on the, I'm suddenly I'm on the client side. Um, so really figuring out how to communicate well uh, with people on that level, but explain to them what you're looking for as much as here's the work, you know, and here's the work that needs, needs to be done. And what does the plan look like moving forward? You know, obviously you've started this process of stepping back three years from now. What does that look like? Are you going to be separated from those projects and have a team that's doing all of the work? Like where do you see it all evolving to? That's a great question. So everyone has a little bit, I, I guess, of a different idea of what they what they see in an agency. I would still like to interface, interface with the clients. So in my mind, I'm not totally removed from the project work. I would still like to be involved because I find it intellectually interesting to be involved. I don't just, I got into this because I find writing interesting and I still find it interesting. And working with SaaS and tech companies, I get to meet so many cool people and with these cool products and hear their stories about how they're building, you know, these amazing things and these, uh, the benefits that they're, that they're creating, delivering to their customers. So that for me is just really fascinating and I don't want to be detached from the process. But, um, but as I imagine, more and more of the work will continue to get to get handed off. And so I will be starting to introduce team members to interface with the clients. So we'll still be present in a couple of meetings time to time at those key touch points or key presentations, but not necessarily in every single, I don't want to micromanage. I don't want to be in every single, you know, every single customer interview or every single, you know, survey, um, survey that, that we run. And, um, as you evolve, what else are you excited about when you're thinking about, okay, this still is stimulating to me, uh, but like there are these other things that are exciting me right now. Uh, what does that look like? Great question. Um, the other, the thing that's really exciting me, and I think it's it's a shift that's happening um, just in general in the marketing world, um, is just the shift back to to messaging and message testing. So it's not just the copywriting is how we say what we say, but more much 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 stronger emphasis on the messaging like what we're saying and why we need to say this um i think one of the things is as i've been working on conversion rate optimization projects it's like you get to a point where you feel like you almost hit a wall like you've tried optimizing and optimizing it's like well how many different times how many times can they say the same thing in a more persuasive way than we said it last time um you know and you get to a point it's like well we're just looking at the copy where people see, you know, the customers see it in context, the traffic, the people who are visiting the site, see things in context. They're looking at um, the message. They're trying to understand why you're saying what you're saying and also trying to understand that in the context of the, of the website. So a lot of conversion rate optimization process, I was finding it's like we kept getting to a certain point. It's like, well, are we even saying, you know, this is not working. This might not be working, but is that because the copy is bad or is it because we're not saying the right thing in the first place? So, and there is a 
there's a difference. They're straight up conversion rate optimization products. These emails are terrible. We need to revamp them. But now every time I sit down, even on a conversion rate optimization product, say, why are we saying these things? Like who made the decision that this is what we need to say? Because the reason why I might not be converting, my, the copy is fine. Like the copy is already good. It's not that it's bad. Like the state, like the homepage headline, it's not a, it's not a false statement. It's a true statement. And the copy here in this project, it's already good. But so it's not, not necessarily the copy's problem. It's the, what we're trying to say, if we change what we're trying to say and wrap that up in good copy, that's really going to get a great lift. So it's um, the combination of the two is um, is really fascinating. I'm finding a lot more CRO projects are actually starting back as messaging problems. You know, the co- the, poor prefer- the poor performing page is actually often a sign of bad messaging in the first place. There was no process trying to fit. There was just like, oh, we need to put a page together, so let's just whip something up. And now it's not converting, so let's try and fix that. But they, there was no strategy behind <laughs> that went into the page in the first place. So how are you bundling that up and is it more audits or is it larger brand messaging and positioning packages and guides or something else? Absolutely. So it's it's it usually it bundles up really well, uh, really easily, especially if you're doing the research. And if you're doing it again, so it's, it's not an audit. It's often um, it's often a much larger project, like the client's repositioning, rebranding or they're re- they know they need to redo their website because it's not converting uh, whatsoever. Or the CMO has said we need to redo the website, but it's really it's very very easy to wrap up the messaging in with the research phase, and then at the end of that, the client also walks away with the deliverable, like they have a messaging summary, or they have the key points for the messages that they need to say, or the messages that we'd like to test as a result of the insights that have come out of this, and that also gives them that also shows them that this research has been very useful because we've come across things that we didn't consider before. It's not just well, you could change this word, you know, change this verb or the button copy should be, you can layer the brand voice into the button copy or you shouldn't layer the brand voice into the button copy and takes it to discussions of, well, we should be mentioning ABC on the page and we don't currently, but that's what clients said in the, customers said in the interviews that ABC was really important to them. And so that also, that becomes, that becomes insanely valuable for the client and they actually are able to use that those insights from the research and keep using that forward in other projects as well. But it's I usually bundle that up together within the, within the research because it's, it's a really good fit there. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about a process for message testing? Uh, because I, I think a lot of so-called message testing happens after we've written the copy, you know, the website's live and it's like, oh, actually, we're, we're not really testing messaging at that point. We're kind of going all in on one, right? So, um, Obviously, there's ways to do it with, you know, Facebook ads and or Google ads, whatever. But how do you do the testing so that you're like, yep, we are relatively confident that this is the one that's going to win? Yep. So there's a few there's a few different ways to test. And like you said, one of the most popular ways, as I say to client, we put up the landing page and run some ads, test the copy, see which what's getting clicks, uh, you know, and things sort of what. It doesn't mean we need to see conversions on the landing page. We want to see clicks on the ads through the landing page. We want to see that something something is catching their interest or sparking, you know, catching their eyes. They're scrolling through, scrolling through LinkedIn or as they're going through the search results um, to try and get to try and just get a temperature check on what what people are more interested in right now. Um, that said, there's also message testing platforms like uh, like Winter.com or, or five second tests or user testing where you can actually you know, you just upload a mock-up or upload sections of the copy and can get feedback on like what, again, more a temperature check um, to see if this is something that's out, if it's clear, if it's understandable, if this makes sense to you or if it sounds cool um, or not. The other one thing that I like to do, and again, this is often what comes out as a result of the research phase, is to hand off key messages to the client and say, get your sales team to start using these in demos or start using these in your outreach emails. Start playing with it now before we start working on on the website copy. Start putting these messages now, start seeing what the response is like. Um, Often clients, you know, if if they've got people coming through that usually if they've got a good product, they'll have good conversion rates like post-demo. And that's, you know, that's, that's great. So what we often need to do is increase the number of book demos increase the number of free trial signups. So, you know, the product is going to deliver, the demo is going to deliver on the back end. But what can we do to that up on the front end? 
So I tell them, so start using these messages in your out-free emails. See what if the responses are increasing, see what who responds well, or start filtering them in the demos and the sales calls. Um, and that's something that April Dunford also recommends in her book, uh, Positioning. She recommends giving give it to the sales reps, wrap it up in a pitch, give it to them, and let make them start using it. So then you're able to gauge how effective it is. So often when a client is doing something as as intense as a repositioning, um, often the company will make the strategic decision to move forward, even if it takes a bit of time to get traction with the messaging because it's for strategic, again, strategic decisions. It's, it builds that long-term brand awareness at the same time. But um, but in those early stages, get the sales team using it. See, drip it in, see if they go... If, You'd see if they get those a client gets those light bulb moments when the, when the sales rep says that magic word or that magic phrase, um, and often we'll see, often you'll start to see positive feedback. So the demo, so the sales calls, the sales will close more easily, or you'll get more responses to the outreach emails, you know, or more accepted LinkedIn requests and things like that. So that's also a really good sign. And then it blends in. You don't have to run another campaign while you're waiting for the, you know, while you're working on the website you're able to give something for sales to sink their teeth into in the meantime. Yeah, I love that idea, especially I think it could work even if you're not working with, um, you know, SaaS companies with larger sales teams uh, or even demos. You could use it for smaller clients who maybe are more present on social media just to say, hey, try these, test out these three messages over the Absolutely. next two weeks to see what gets a lot of traction here. That's such a valuable yeah, tool for you as you're in the research mm -hmm. mode anyway, just to give you more insights. Yeah. Facebook post, put this, put these one, two lines in this, in your next Facebook post, your next LinkedIn post, you have an email newsletter, great. Put these lines in there and see, you know, or use it as a subject line of the email and see if, you know, people are, if it's spiking interest or it's, you get more open. So stepping back from um, the work you're doing with your clients, I want to just kind of look at the larger picture of how you've grown and um, I think it's easy for people to look at you and say, wow, you know, Eden just took off and is, has this amazing business um, and not think about all the steps along the way and all the work you've put into it. So beyond what we've already talked about around pitching and then pitching the next client and just working your way up with what you're charging and your experience and that confidence, I just wonder what else, if there were any other pivotal moves that you made along the way that you're like, that made a huge difference, you know, year three when I did that thing. And um, mm. what were those for you? I think the the most pivotal thing that happened was when I decided that I was remembering that I'm human and that there's only so many hours of a day I can work this. And there's only so much time that you have and that you're also valuable as a person. I think there's a thing Thing that happens to us as freelancers and as service providers where it's like well every available minute of the day should be spent doing work should be working doing client work because that means I'm going to get more money you know we're people we're not <laughs> I'm not chat GPT I'm not a robot I can't magic up uh, you know copy without effort so take you have to understand that you there are only a certain number of hours in the day that you can dedicate to this <clears throat> or you're going to burn out you have to remember that to save to save your own sanity don't don't count on oh, i can book in this extra client because i have a day open here next week um that i have a day next a day off next week where i can fill in the spot for that client and you know what a kid's going to be sick or it's going to rain or your power's going to cut out or something something is going to happen or you might get client feedback on another project and you should be doing revisions on that instead of that. And suddenly you're double booked and suddenly you're stressed and you're working till 3 a.m. Um, yeah, it's a, we're, we're people, we're not robots. I think it's just remi remembering that, okay, there's only so much time I can do. So, okay, what, how can I then maximize that time? Often it's in raising the prices for some people. It's getting them an assistant to help take the workload off so they can focus on the, work that really that really brings in uh, really brings in the most income and so for some it's also then investing in yourself so to be able to give yourself and it doesn't necessarily mean oh investing in a copywriting course but it's like take a day off like take that day off go outside walk outside smell the roses 
you know, take a deep breath and and think about things like away from the computer, away from work, because that's that's just as equally important as actually doing work. Um, I know we talked a little bit about this before we jumped on the call, but a lot of there's a lot of FOMO, and I, I talked to a friend of mine the other day. There's a lot of FOMO in the copywriting world. It's like you should be earning you know, five figures, six figures, crack six figures in your first three months or in your first year. Um, you know, and not only is that, is it very hard for a lot of people to to do that? It also requires a lot of really hard work and not everyone has the capability or the capacity to be able to do that. You know, you're caring for sick family members or they have small children or they're just, they're a student and so they're, or they're working another job full time or everything. So, but you feel that if you don't live up to these standards, that it's that you're missing out on all the riches and the wonderful, you know, freelancer lifestyle that everyone's talking about. Um, but again, remember that we're, we're at the end of the day, we're all human and there's only so much you can do and to take it. It's okay to go slowly. It's okay to take things at your own pace. There is always going to be someone ahead of you, but there's always going to be someone behind you. So you're already much further along than someone else in the world. So it's it's okay to keep going forward at your own pace. Yeah, what does that look like uh, for you, Eden? You mentioned you've got a bunch of kids. Um, you know, I imagine you're not sitting at your desk 12 hours a day. You know, right. is it three to four hours a day? Is it, you know, you're, you're doing it late at night after everybody's in bed? Like, what does that actually look like in your daily life? Yeah, it varies. So to, going back to the question about the agency before, so I realized that I did not want to have to work in the evening to make up time if I missed out on a project or I didn't want to have, feel like I was forced to work that extra day or um, to give myself that freedom and that greater flexibility. That's what inspired me to step back and to actually bring on assistance to help out more behind the scenes that I could do that. But yeah, so it it really varies from day to day, but it's usually, it's around four to four to six hours of work probably in front of the computer, but it, it varies on some days. It's more, some days it's less. Um, occasionally there will be a, a late night in there, but that's, I think that happens to all of us, all of us for every now and then, but it's not, it's certainly not the norm where I, was, I remember in the first probably three years, it was the norm. Well, I think that's great advice to end this conversation on. I know it's advice that I often need to hear myself and I need to tell myself often, you are not a robot, you are a human, just be a human and take some time away from the laptop. Uh, so for anyone listening who wants to connect with you or learn more about what you're doing, just pop in and say hello. Where should they go? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn is the best place. I only have one social media channel on LinkedIn. It is so. Or... All right. We will, we will see you there on LinkedIn. And uh, thanks, Eden, for sharing so much about your business and your, your ladder of growth. Uh, it is amazing to see what you've accomplished slowly, but surely. Thank you. That's the end of our interview with Eden Badani. I want to expand on a couple of the ideas that we talked about with Eden, just to give you a little bit more to think about as you take some of these ideas and apply them into your own business. So we, we started by talking about this idea of leveling up, uh, going from the $15 blog article client to the point where now Eden runs an agency. She's charging significantly more, uh, thousands of dollars per project. And the way that she did it, obviously, uh, super smart because um, she used samples from the, the cheaper client to pitch the next client and ladder up, slowly raising your prices, iterating, getting better both at your skill set, at uh, improving the clients that she's working with, raising the prices, and gradually moving from point to point to where she is now. Slow growth, raising your rates slowly, upgrading your clients slowly, building your team slowly, ensures that you don't get out ahead of your skis, you're, you're, you don't end up uh, with the same kinds of um, up and down in your client roster and in the number of clients that you're able to find and connect with. It's a really smart way to go. Oftentimes we get caught up in this idea that we just we need to grow fast and we need to get it done now. And if we if we have the luxury to back off, I know sometimes there are financial issues or pressing needs that require you to you know earn more money immediately. But if you can slow that down just a little bit, oftentimes you get to a better place. 
We are also talking uh, a little bit about pitching and Kira mentioned the P7 course uh, as we we're talking about that. I should just quickly mention that is our series of five workshops where we shared our process for creating a pitch that resonates with cold prospects. It teaches you how to use the connection spectrum to warm up cold leads. It gives you more than 20 templates for pitching via email, direct messaging, and more. Uh, it, it includes a couple of uh, over-the-shoulder videos where I show you how I use uh, LinkedIn and Google and different uh, tools to find great leads. You can find out more about that uh, if you're interested in P7 at thecopywriterclub.com forward slash P7. That's not really an advertisement. I just want to let you know it's there because Kira had mentioned it. Um, but getting back to this idea of, of pitching, when you're pitching, uh, oftentimes, you know, the fact that we're sending these things out, it, it creates expectations within ourselves and it can actually feel really personal. And so I really liked Eden's recommendation that we lower expectations regarding pitching, you know, knowing that a lot of pitches aren't going to get responses. A lot of the responses that we do get are going to be no. And occasionally we're going to get a yes and it's still worth going after. You know, if, if you could push a button uh, you know, let's say I give you that easy button that's on your desk and you could push it 50 times and land a client every 50 pushes, you would do it. You'd probably push the button a couple of hundred times a day just to land more clients. Pitching is really the same thing. The only difference is uh, instead of pushing the button, you're sending out that pitch. But for some reason, we attach a lot of emotion to it. We've spent some time writing this email or the, the direct message or however it is that we're sending out this pitch. And we put a lot ourselves into it and it becomes personal and we need to detach ourselves from that, depersonalize it. Every time I send out an email, it's just like pushing the button and 49 times out of 50, it's not going to get that response or the response is going to be no, but the 50th push, the 50th email is going to get the response. And as Kira mentioned in you know, the P7 course, we teach how to improve your odds so that it's not necessarily every 50, but maybe it's one out of every five, one out of every 10. Uh, you can check that out if you want. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about really is the two-call discovery process. So Eden mentioned it and we had a brief conversation around it, but um, this is something that a lot of people use effectively. It's actually very common in the sales world to uh, differentiate between a lead and an opportunity. The lead is you know, somebody who's maybe raised their hand and expressed interest, but they haven't really been qualified to, uh, and when I say qualified, I mean, you haven't really figured out like, do they have the right budget? Do they have the kind of project that you're interested in? Uh, is it the, uh, the timeline, does that work? You know, all of those things. And so by taking care of that in a first call, figuring that stuff out and then qualifying them, then the second call, they are what a salesperson might call an opportunity. And that is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a qualified lead, right? It's somebody that uh, we really can work with and we just need to get them the right information so that they can say, yes, um, we use that first call. If you if you have a two-step process, you use that first call not to force a decision, but just to connect with the person, figure out is there a fit, and get some real basic information, like I said, about budget, about timeline, about the kind of project that it is. And if those things are a fit, then you set up that second call and use some of that information that you got on the first call to drive the conversation on the first call, or on the second call, sorry. And that second call starts with that recap, and it's an opportunity to identify and resolve objections. You know, as we were talking on that last call, I'm basically giving you the script. As we were talking about on that first call, you know, we mentioned the budget is X, you need this delivered by the end of November, and you're really looking for a website copy and a couple of email sequences. It does, is that still correct? Or, you know, has the project changed at all, right? Like you're recapping some of that discussion because you're looking for any changes, any uh, objections that they might have, especially if you've been able to touch on budget and timeline, uh, that stuff should come up. And then that second call, of course, do your discovery the way that you do it. It's not a, you're not selling yourself, but you're asking just a ton of questions about the project, about the company, about the product that you're selling, about the competition, about the person behind the product. You want to get all of that information. You want to talk about budget. You want to talk about timeline. You want to get it all nailed down so that you've pretty much got a firm yes by the end of that call. And when the proposal shows up, a couple of days later or a couple of hours later, whatever your process is, 
it's a simple formality, just signing the proposal and, and making it go. So if you want to explore that two call process, uh, that's that's kind of the basics on how to do it. There is a lot of information uh, about that kind of thing. In fact, we have a really good sales training inside the Copywriter Underground. If you want to check that out, I mentioned it at the top of the show and I'm going to mention it again here as we wrap up. Um, it's included in the Underground. It's a, about a four part. Uh, it's really good sales uh, training. Um, and one more thing I, I want to just briefly mention, Eden mentioned the questions that she uh, uses to go deeper. I kind of made a joke about it. You know, it's, I said, you know, my follow up here should be. And then I asked her one of those questions. But uh, even though I sort of meant it as a joke, it actually worked. Eden did go deeper. She shared even more. She gave me an example and, and talked about it. So if you're not already doing it, use some of these questions that Eden shared to probe and get the real details from your customers as you're doing interviews or from your clients as you're talking to them about the project. It works and it can provide a ton of really valuable information that will help your copy be better. Okay, that's it. We wanna thank Eden for joining us to chat about her business and how she's grown from $15 blog posts to running a digital agency today. You can connect with her on LinkedIn as she suggested. She's very easy to find, uh, so check her out there. And don't forget to check out the copywriterclub.com forward slash TCU, Thomas Club, underground, uh, you know, TCU, to join the very best community for copywriters who want to get better slowly, kind of like Eden did. The resources there are an amazing value. Uh, check it out and see if it's not a fit for you. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts to leave a review of the show. That really helps us and lets us know what you think about it. Don't miss our other podcasts at AIforcreativeentrepreneurs.com. You can watch on YouTube or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better copy and make more money.